Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall also be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters as their eye, before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, and the wilderness of Zin. And Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Numbers 27, 12 through 23. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, friends, we have been going through the book of Numbers, looking at the journey to God's promise, and we are nearing the end of that journey. Next week, we'll conclude the series. And so the hope has been that as we look at Israel's journey, that it would shape our journey, that it would shape our journey towards God's promises. And so as we look at that journey, we've seen that uh, in the wilderness, it has been a 40-year journey with two generations of people. That journey has been marked by complaining, by rebellion, by unbelief, but most of all, it has been marked by God's faithfulness to his promises. And so in this story, um, they are now at the place where they're just about to enter into the land. And so before uh, the passage that you heard read today in chapter 27, chapter 26, we get a second census a second set of numbers, which is why the book is named Numbers. And so uh, toward the beginning of the book, we got the first census numbering out the whole first generation. They have all died except for three. There's three left. There's Moses. Who else? Nice, Jana, Joshua and Caleb. That's right. So those are the three left standing from the first generation. And so now this census is being taken of the new generation, this, uh, this second generation. And right before the passage that we read, in the beginning of 
uh, chapter 27, we see the story about the daughters of Zelophehad. And their father died in sin, in rebellion, and he had no sons. And so the daughters go and they make this plea to God that they would be given an inheritance, that they would be given land, and it's granted to them. So right before this passage that we heard today, we've got this flood of grace, this flood of inheritance. God is giving each of the families, each of the tribes, their allotted land, their inheritance. These daughters, these feisty sisters go and plea, can we have some too, even though our father is dead and we have no brothers? And they get the land, so everybody's getting land, everybody's getting some, right? And then there's one person that doesn't. Who doesn't get land? Who doesn't get an inheritance? It's Moses. It's the leader, the mediator. Moses, the meekest man in all the earth, the one who led God's people out of Egypt. Moses, the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments, the one who led them wandering for 40 years leading God's people. He doesn't get to go in. Does that feel unfair, unjust, cruel even? What does that mean? for us if Moses doesn't get to go in. Well, let's take a moment and pray that God would speak to us this morning through his word, that he would transform us and shape our journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. It is living, it is active, it is not dead words from dead men, but it is from you. And so, Lord, it is more powerful, more mighty than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use it in our hearts this morning. Would you show us our need for you? Would you comfort us by it this morning? And Lord, change us. Make us more like you. May we be a different people when we leave this place this morning than when we came. And Lord, I pray that you would use me, a crooked stick, to draw a straight line to the truth of your word. I ask it in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The passage, these couple chapters that we're looking at, uh, remind me a lot of a wedding. You have God's people, this new generation, And God is with them, and they're being numbered, they're being named, and so they are known, they are loved. God is doling out his grace, his mercy, his promises, and uh, and it's it's kind of like a wedding in a sense. And in fact, uh, the Bible uses wedding language to talk about the relationship between God and his people. The prophets often refer to God as a husband. And of course, the church is called the bride of Christ. So we see Jesus as a groom and his church as a bride. And so um, it reminded me, uh, when Kirsten and I got married, we followed this 
this little tradition, and maybe uh, some of you who are married uh, followed the same thing. What should the bride wear, right? Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Who's participated in that? Anybody besides my wife? Okay, all right, so um, this tradition, we participated in it, and uh, we were young and didn't even ask, well, like, where did that come from? What does that even mean? Like, oh, that sounds cool. We'll do it. So, but what it means, what it represents is really cool. Uh, something old is to uh, represent a link with the past. Uh, the bride's family of origin. And so she's to wear something old. She's to wear something new as a reminder of the new life that she will share with her husband. She's to wear something borrowed, something that would come from a happily married woman to convey something of her happiness to the new marriage, a borrowed happiness. And then something blue. Blue, uh, that phrase really comes from... um, medieval time period where colors had much more significance uh, in culture and even religion than they do now, but the blue was a sign of faithfulness. And so it was a symbol of faithfulness, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Okay, so in the text today, I wanna see, uh, I'm gonna show you kind of these these four things. And so I want us to see uh, each of them And so we'll start with the first one, something old. Uh, There are a few things that uh, should remind us of things of old in this passage. So let's look at the first few verses once again, 12 to 15, or to 14 rather. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, You also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So the first thing, uh, something old that we see in this passage is the old man old man Moses, right? So he's 120 years old at this point. And so Moses is this something old that takes them back to the beginning of the journey. He was there in Egypt. He was there to lead them out. So remember, this is a new generation. They weren't there with him. And so the something old, this connection to Moses, we see. But also here, we see these promises of old that are connected. We've been talking about uh, Genesis 12, the promises given to Abraham of land, promise of becoming great in number, of becoming great in name, of becoming blessed to be a blessing. And so they are connected to these promises of old. There's also something old here, this land This land that is being shown, uh, they saw it 40 years ago. And the people of God refused to enter into it out of fear and rebellion. Okay, so we see 
uh, the old man, we see the old promises, and we see God's mercy. And that has been from of old as well. So time and time again, through the book of Numbers, we see Israel rebel, and yet God remains faithful through all of it. He continues to move them forward even when they outright reject. And then we saw that story uh, at the beginning of chapter 27. Uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, they, um, he had rebelled. He had no sons, and his daughters are given this inheritance. So we see God's mercy continuing, even at the beginning of this chapter. The other thing that we see of old is God's justice. It has always been there. And God's justice is crucial. We've said this before. You wouldn't want a God who didn't care about injustice. You wouldn't want a God who turned a blind eye to evil. If he did those things, he wouldn't be good. And so we're reminded in this story that Moses and his brother Aaron misrepresented God in chapter 20 of Numbers at Meribah. God at that time had called for mercy. He wanted to show his people his mercy and Moses and Aaron in unbelief they decide to lead with judgment. And so they misrepresent God and they lose their authority in all of it. There's, uh, we did a sermon on that. And so if you uh, missed that week, definitely go back on the website and, uh, and listen to it. Uh, but basically at the end of it, God tells Aaron and Moses that they're not going to get to inherit the land. And so their sin is one of unbelief. Now, when we think about sins, like if, if I ask people, hey, list out what you think are the worst sins. What are the top sins? Usually people don't say, oh, unbelief. Usually people wanna lead with like, oh, murder or adultery, right? We might get a little further down the list and go, oh, lying, stealing, those kinds of things. But usually unbelief doesn't make the list. But unbelief is so dangerous. It's dangerous because in our unbelief, it moves us away from God. And what we are made for is relationship with God. That uh, creative act that God does is to bring uh, more delight. He so delights in himself. And he creates an order to bring us into the delight that he knows. And unbelief moves us away from that delight. Unbelief is like this. It's imagine uh, uh, you walk outside here and you see someone take a gallon of milk and pour it into their gas tank. You'd be like, what on earth are you doing? That's not what that's made for, right? This is going to go horribly for you if you do that. It's not what you're made for. And that's exactly what unbelief does, is it moves us away from the thing we were made for. We are made for relationship, for delight in God, and unbelief moves us away from him. And so we see unbelief in our trials often. What does that look like? We 
maybe say to ourselves, maybe it's even more subconscious, I don't believe God can fulfill his promises. And it leaves us with worry and despair. We're not made for those things. We're made for delight with God. So we can experience unbelief and trials, but we can also experience it even in our success. What does that look like? It looks like this. I believe that I have achieved my success. It's a result of my own gifts, my own efforts, and not God, not his work. And so again, what that does is it, it leaves us estranged from God. It moves us away from what we are made for. It leaves us full of pride and self-centeredness on one end and worry and despair on the other end. So in this passage, God does this. He reminds Moses that he is not going to enter the land because of what had happened lest Moses has a false hope. And so if you're hoping, if Moses is hoping, maybe God will relent. Maybe he'll change his mind. He doesn't, okay? He's not going to. God says in his justice, because of what happened, you will go to the mountain and be gathered among your people what that phrase means is your forefathers. You're going to be gathered among them means you're gonna die, okay? You're gonna to go to the mountain and you're going to die. And you're only gonna see the land from afar. Now think about this. Of all people to receive God's judgment, Moses, doesn't he deserve God's mercy, God's grace after all he's done? Why doesn't he get to enter the land? I often have a conversation with people where I'll say, um, you know, if you were standing before God and God said, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you in? People often answer this. Well, you know, I've been, I've been a good person, right? I've been faithful to my spouse, provided for my children, pay my taxes, you know, whatever the list is. I've been a good person. And a good question is this. Okay, so you've been a good person. What if we created a scale of evil and good, right? And so on uh, the good side, let's put uh, the Apostle Paul, okay? And on the other side, we'll put Hitler, all right? So on that sort of scale here, where, where would you put yourself on that, uh, that evil to good? Most people don't say, oh, Hitler, right? Most people don't say, oh, Apostle Paul, like I'm even above that, right? What do most people say? Uh, somewhere in the middle, probably, right? Well, here's the thing. The Apostle Paul says this, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst, right? So if you think that um, you're behind Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul says he's behind Hitler. Where does that put you on the scale? How about this? What if we change the scale to Moses and God's people in the wilderness, right? 
Where, where do you fit on that scale? Somewhere in the middle, maybe, right? Well, I'm not Moses, but I'm also maybe not as bad of a complainer and rebellious as the people of God have been. So maybe somewhere on the middle, right? But here's the thing. Moses isn't good enough to earn it. He doesn't go it, get to go in. And so if it's not possible for Moses, what does that mean for you and I? It shows us this, that it's always about God's grace. Always. We only enter into his promises by his grace alone, through faith alone. So we see something old in this passage. We see Moses. We see God's promises. We see God's mercy. We see God's justice. And we should also see something old for ourselves. We, through faith, are connected to God's people of old. We are connected to these promises of old. We are connected to God's people as his spirit has been at work through the ages, right? That's an amazing thing. So we should see for ourselves something old, but we should also see something new. In this story, we have a new generation and it's, there's this new attitude. They are much more bold. They are not running away in fear like the old generation was. But they're not perfect either, right? And so for us, the something new that we should see is that we, through faith, are a new creation. For some of us, our parents were not followers of Jesus. And so God is doing something new in us, in our families. And for each of us, whether you come from a Christian household or you're the first Christians in your household, for each of us, God is daily making us into something new, making us more and more like Jesus. So the something new we see in this passage, a new people, we also see a new leader. We're given this new leader, Joshua. And so God tells Moses, all right, you're not going to get to enter the land. And Moses' response is so surprising. If that were me and God said, you're not going to go to the land, you're going to die on the mountain, I would start making the case, wait a second, God. I think I should be able to see the land. Let me give you the list of what I've done here, right? But Moses does this incredible thing. He doesn't try to defend himself at all. What does he do? He goes right to the care of his people and says, they need a leader. Give them a leader. They need a shepherd. They need a king. And for us, this is a great reminder that we need earthly shepherds. You cannot go it alone in Christianity. We need leaders, we need each other. And that is why God grants the requests. He gives a new leader. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need leaders. Jesus looks out and sees we need leaders. We need laborers. These sheep need a shepherd. And so God grants Moses' request. Let's uh, take a look at verses 18 and 19. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him, make him stand before Eliezer the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. So Joshua, you remember, gave the minority report 40 years earlier. When God showed them the land, he said, let's go get it. While everyone else says, we can't do it. And they step back in fear. Joshua, Joshua and Caleb were the voices that said, no, God will do this. And so now we see Joshua 40 years later. He's been assisting Moses along the way for these many years. The spirit of God was upon him. And so Moses takes him before the high priests and all the people, and he commissions him as a new leader. But again, it begs this question. Okay, new leader, why not Moses? Why not the old leader? All right, so we've seen something borrowed, or excuse me, something old, something new. Now let's take a look at what is borrowed here. Let's take a ver uh, look at verse 20. Something borrowed. Numbers 27, 20. You shall invest him with some of your authority, with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Joshua is not to receive his own authority, but it's really this borrowed authority from Moses. Moses is to give him some of his authority. And so they're going to co-lead for a little bit. There's this plan of succession, but Joshua is not Moses 2.0. He's not uh, the new Moses, new and improved. He's only given some of Moses's authority. If you remember Moses, has this such unique relationship with God. Face to face, he speaks to God. He's completely unique, but Joshua is going to look very different. Let's look at verse 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So Joshua doesn't get to just go face to face with God. Joshua has to go to the priest. 
And the priest uses these divinely appointed stones to give a yes or a no. And the priest then tells Joshua what the answer is, and then Joshua tells the people. So it's very, very different from Moses. He's given some of Moses' authority. Let's take a look at Matthew 10, 1. And he, Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus does this same thing. He gives not all of his authority, but to his disciples, he gives some authority to go and do these things. And then he does the same thing with us. Matthew 28 tells us this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Okay, so if Jesus has the authority. He's commissioning him, uh, commissioning us with his authority. Make disciples of the nations, baptize them, teach them, and I'll be with you right? So Jesus commissions us with his authority as well. So, again, it leads us to this question, though. Why do we have to borrow Moses's authority in this story of Numbers? Why not just have Moses? All right, so that leads us to the next one here. We've had something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Now I'm a little bit colorblind. So uh, a lot of times uh, when I see purple, it looks blue. When I see blue, it looks kind of purple. So I'm gonna go with, as opposed to something blue, something blue, purple, okay? Something that doesn't quite rhyme as nice, but. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something purple, okay? So here's the purple. Purple is the color of royalty. Let's look at 15 and uh, 16 here, 17. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses is asking for a king. Purple is the the color of royalty. He is asking for a king and a shepherd. He's looking for someone that will take the people out, a king's role, when they go to war, right? Think of the boldness of David when he goes out to war. But yet, David fails too. So David is not the ultimate king that we need. David stays home when he should be out with his men. And so the royalty, the king that Moses asks for is not Moses, it's not David, it's someone even greater. Moses asks for a shepherd, someone to rein the people in when they go astray, someone to care for the people, someone to know 
the sheep, Moses' request can only be perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our shepherd. You're going to start seeing this passage a bunch as Advent is coming, right? And this shows us Isaiah's prophecy for a king to come. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be on the shoulder. That's a language of a king. On the throne of David, he will be and over his kingdom. The promise of Jesus is the promise of a king. But Jesus is also a shepherd. John 10, 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So, why can't Moses go into the land? We keep coming back to this question. Here's the amazing thing of what happens in this story. The leader, the mediator, Moses, experiences denial. He experiences death. And the people of God enter into God's promises. Moses is a picture of the mediator to come. He is a picture of Jesus, our perfect mediator, our perfect shepherd, our perfect king, who lays down his life for his sheep, who dies on the cross so that we can enter in to what God has promised. Jesus goes up to the mountain. Jesus goes up to Calvary to be gathered to his people to die so that we might live. Moses then dying on the mountain while his people get to enter into the promise of God is a picture that points us forward to Jesus. For it's through Jesus alone that we will fully and finally enter into all that God has promised. And so Moses doesn't enter the earthly promised land, but rather the promised land that it points to. When he closes his eyes on earth and he opens them, he is in the presence of God. He is in the presence of Jesus. And that is ultimately the promise that he is waiting on. And it's ultimately the promise that we are waiting upon. So in our own spiritual journey, let this story today shape us and remind us, the church, the bride of Jesus, of something old, the promises that God made to Abraham that are still for us through faith in Jesus. This story belongs to us. It is for us. Let it remind us of something new, the new life that we have through faith in Jesus. He changes our hearts and he makes us more and more each day like himself. Let it remind us of something borrowed. Jesus gives us his righteousness. 
We earn nothing before God because Jesus has already secured it all for us. We inherit the credit for the perfect life through faith. It is borrowed from Jesus. And then let us remember something purple. We've been given the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate king to lead us. His royalty is is divine because he is the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who laid down his life so that we could enter into what God has promised, eternal life with him, an end of pain, suffering, mourning, and even death. That promise is both already and it is not yet. And so we wait for our king our shepherd, to lead us out and to bring us in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today. We give you thanks for your promises. We give you thanks for these reminders in this story. Lord, help us cling to the promise of old Help us remember that you have made us into new creations. Help us remember that righteousness is borrowed from you, that it belongs to you. And help us remember that we have a divine king and shepherd. Help us to live in light of each of these things, that we may go out as your bride into this world, that as we scatter, we would show the world how good, how beautiful you are. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.